0: Welcome to STEM Talk. STEM Talk.
1: STEM talk. STEM, STEM,
0: STEM, talk. talk. STEM, STEM talk. STEM
1: Talk. Welcome to STEM Talk, where we introduce you to fascinating people who passionately inhabit the scientific and technical frontiers of our society. Hi, I'm your host Don Cornegas, and joining me to introduce today's podcast is the man behind the curtain, Dr. Ken Ford, HMC's director and chairman of the Double Secret Selection Committee that selects all the guests who appear on STEM Talk.
0: Hi, Don. Great to be here today.
1: So our guest today is Dr. Sachin Panda, a professor and researcher at the Salk Institute who has become recognized as one of the world's leading experts on circadian rhythm, which is the body's natural day-night cycle. His book, The Circadian Code, provides a look at ways people can improve their health, sleep, and even prevent and reverse disease by adopting a lifestyle that is aligned with the body's natural internal clock.
0: Much of the recent excitement about circadian rhythms stems from the 2017 Nobel Prize in Medicine which was awarded to three scientists who discovered the genes that control the circadian rhythm. Dr. Panda, who is a founding executive member of the Center for Circadian Biology at the University of California, San Diego, has also been generating significant attention for his research into the health benefits of time-restricted eating.
1: But before we get to today's fascinating interview with Satcham, we have some housekeeping to take care of. First, we really appreciate all of you who have subscribed to Stem Talk, and we are especially appreciative of all the wonderful five-star reviews that have been piling up. The Double Secret Selection Committee has been continually and carefully reviewing iTunes, Google, Stitcher, and other podcast apps for the wittiest and most lavishly praise-filled reviews to read on Stem Talk. As always, if you hear you review read on Stem Talk, just contact us at stemtalk at IHMC.us to claim your official Stem Talk t-shirt.
0: Today our winning review was posted by someone who goes by the moniker a smitty 13 and the review is titled, I always fall asleep on flights but not when I'm listening to STEM talk. The review reads, I travel a lot for work, and every time I get on the plane, I instantly become sleepy. It doesn't matter what time of day it is, or how much sleep I got the night before. As soon as I buckle myself in, I'm out like a light. So, to prevent this, I make sure that I have a few episodes of STEM Talk downloaded prior to boarding. One episode after the other, I'm at the edge of my tiny airplane seat, fully engaged and best of all, awake. Thanks for teaching me something new with each episode. If I could, I would give STEM Talk more stars.
1: Well, thank you, Mitty, 13 and a huge thank you to all of our other STEM Talk listeners who've helped STEM Talk become such a great success.
0: Okay, and now on to our interview with Sachin Panda. STEM Talk.
1: STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM, STEM Talk. STEM, STEM Talk. talk. STEM Hi, welcome to STEM Talk. I'm your host, Don Konegis, and joining us today is Dr. Sachin Panda. Sachin, welcome to STEM Talk.
0: Hi, ah, thank you. I'm glad to be here.
1: And also joining us is Ken Ford.
0: Hi, Don, and hello, Sachin. Hello, Ken.
1: So, Sachin, let's get started. You were raised in India, and I understand that as a child, you were rather curious and also a little bit of a nonconformist. And your (laughs) parents, like a lot of parents in India, wanted you to grow up to become a doctor or engineer, but you weren't really interested in that because you didn't see that as very original. Is that right?
2: Well, that was uh, almost 35 years ago. It was a different India, and people who became doctors or engineers, they did the job for the rest of their life, and things have changed. So, in that way, I was not very excited to be a doctor or engineer. But being in the U.S. right now, if I have to start all over again, maybe my ideal career path would be to do an undergrad in engineering and then do an md mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Yep, I agree. Mm-hmm. Your book, The Circadian Code, is dedicated to your maternal and paternal grandparents. You write in the book that you were fortunate to be born in 1971 and raised during a unique time in India's history, where you experience firsthand just how a rapidly evolving modern society disrupts the interconnectedness of our biological rhythms. As a child, you particularly saw this play out in the lifestyles of your grandfathers. Can you elaborate on this a little?
2: Yeah. So when I was growing up, my parents used to live very close to my maternal grandfather who lived in a small town and he worked in Indian railway and most of his work involved staying awake late into the night, sometimes doing the night shift. So he would go back and forth between doing the night shift in the weekdays and then trying to come back to normal social life in the weekend. And I could see his life was very stressful. And contrasting that, only 150 kilometers away was my paternal grandparents' um, villas. And when I went there during summer break, I would see that my paternal grandparents, uh, they lived on the farm, and uh, there was no electricity in the villas. So uh, most of the daily activities of the farm was entirely during daytime, and we had our dinner very early in the evening, and um, we had very good sleep at night. I didn't uh, realize the significance of this contrast until a few years later when my maternal grandfather, after he retired from Indian railway, he had good uh, retirement benefits uh, health care, but still by late sixties in his late sixties he developed Alzheimer's disease and then passed away in his early seventies so contrasting that, uh, my paternal grandfather, who lived in the village, had no access to what we now call clean water because he used to get his uh, drinking water from an open well and took bath in a pond and Lived on a farm, raised his own grains and everything. The only thing he used to buy was salt from outside. <laughs> uh, he lived up to the days of early 90s. And he didn't have any, any of this chronic disease. No diabetes, no obesity. And he was very sharp until the end. So that really uh, surprised me how these two different lifestyles had very different outcome in life.
1: So when you were a junior in high school, you lost your father in an accident with a truck driver. Can you share with us the impact it has had on you when you learned that the truck driver was mostly sleep-deprived?
2: Yeah, so this was um, very unfortunate. I was only 13 years old. And what struck me was this, even till now, in many countries, it's illegal to drive when you're drunk. And there are ways to measure how much alcohol is in your blood. But we know that being sleep-deprived is almost as dangerous or even more dangerous than having alcohol. But still, until this date, we have no way to measure whether someone is sleep-deprived and is uh, driving. I still think about it, and um, fortunately, National Institute of Health in the U.S. and many European countries Funding agencies are now looking seriously into this to develop biomarkers to check sleep deprivation in a way similar to alcohol so that one day, maybe in the future, one can take a breathing test and figure out how many hours this person has been awake. Mm-hmm. And that will allow the car or truck to start
1: So in your book, you describe several instances that sparked your interest in science, but it was when you decided to attend agricultural school like your father that science became more of a passion for you rather than just an interest. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so going to agricultural school was really interesting for me, although I didn't know what was in store for me, uh, what kind of courses. As I started in Aggie school, I realized that this uh, school offered a really very well-rounded education because uh, all the people think that in Aggie school you learn about, uh, say, agronomy, horticulture, Those kind of courses, uh, we also had uh, good exposure to diverse set of courses. For example, genetics, uh, nutrition, statistics, engineering, chemistry, biophysics, and even climate science, biochemistry, and a little bit of agriculture and sociology. So that gave a lot of interesting options for me. And then I came to see how biology connects from single cell or inside a cell to the whole community, whole society and how engineering, nutrition, all of these fit into a grand plan of human living. So uh, then it became very interesting to see how you can work on one simple aspect, but you can have impact on humanity. And that's what was very impressive about my time in this um, agricultural school in a state called Odisha in India.
1: So Sachin, after finishing your master's degree, how did you end up with a research job at a flavor and fragrance manufacturer in India?
2: Well, actually, that was also surprising for me because I didn't know that uh, (laughs) such jobs existed. But during my master's, I worked on plant biochemistry and molecular biology. When we think of plant products, we always think of nutrition. But at the same time, there are a lot of fragrances, a lot of flavors that actually come from plants. In fact, some of them may come from stuff like uh, peppermint (laughs) slods or Hmm. from vanilla beans. The point is many of these flavoring agents or fragrances are not really present in its mature form inside the plant. In fact, you take the plant product and then process them using biochemical techniques or molecular techniques, and then you get the fragrance or flavors out. So in that way, this was really exciting for me because I could use my knowledge on a completely different aspect of biology that I had never thought about. And that also exposed me to this nice connection between agriculture The growing vanilla beans and how those vanilla beans, uh, raised in southern part of India, finally end up as flavouring agents in Western countries. To see that pipeline of agriculture, research, production, refinement of the product, and then packaging, and finally getting it to grocery shelf in uh, Western countries, that was really exciting for me.
1: So it eventually became clear to you that the only way to climb the ladder with this company was to go into management or earn a PhD. So can you talk about how that led you to Canada and eventually to the US?
2: Yeah, so when I was uh, working in that company, I realized that all the big sorts in the company either had a PhD, so they were the lead scientists, or they're the managers. So then I realized that uh, with the managers with an MBA degree. So then I realized that to climb up, uh, just a master's in science, MS degree is not enough. You had to do either a PhD or management. And um, slowly... Looking at some of the managers, uh, I thought, no, it'll be really nice to have a PhD degree so then I can pursue my curiosity. But at the same time, I thought that if I have to do a PhD, then it better be in North America because whatever you say, the North American universities offer the best intellectual environment for scientific curiosity. And uh, that's why I started to apply to various faculties in North America, at that time, someone from Canada, he accepted me as a PhD student. And that's how I ended up in Canada. Hmm.
3: Hmm.
0: What led you to select Plant Circadian Rhythm as your PhD topic?
2: Yeah, so from the very beginning and um, going back to the Aggie School, one thing was very clear to me from plant breeding and genetics. That was, if we look at why this planet can still support 7 billion people right now, is because of green revolution or increase in plant productivity. And that happened because of two major things in plant breeding history. One is a pretty relatively long history of plant breeding when plant breeders inadvertently selected many different types of strains, lines, and varieties that ultimately led to having a, uh, so for example, corn. The original corn plant in Mexico would produce a small corn cub that would not even feed a chihuahua, Hmm. whereas, uh, (laughs) you know, A few hundred years of plant breeders' um, deliberate work has led to what we now see one corn plant can feed a family even (laughs) for a day. So similarly, uh, there are many progresses in um, plant breeding. And then the second thing that happened was um, the real green revolution by Norman Borlaug, who got a Nobel Prize. And he found that many plants, for example, wheat, can only be grown in one season, but he discovered a new strain that could be grown in three different seasons. So essentially, it would break the plant's normal affinity to flower and fruit in only one season. And that was really surprising, that how can you break the plant's internal time-sensing mechanism so that now the plant can flower in any season? And uh, that's the key to supporting human life in the last 50 years. So that aspect of circadian rhythm in plant really fascinated me. Although at that time, Norman Bullogger, many of the plant breeders did not know what they actually have done to the clock, I could see the profound impact of breaking the circadian rhythm or leveraging it to improve human life. So that's why I was interested in circadian rhythm in general, and I was writing to many circadian rhythm researchers. And finally, this guy, Steve Kay, who is currently in University of Southern California, he used to be at Salk Institute sorry, Scripps Institute, he accepted me, and that's how I ended up in plant circadian rhythm. Hmm.
0: The circadian rhythm field is generally not dedicated to curing a specific disease. It's more aimed at understanding the timing mechanism, as you discussed, in biological systems like plants and fruit flies, mice, and humans. But you took a sort of different route and became interested in circadian rhythms and metabolism, as well as much else. But how did this come about? What caused you to be interested in metabolism as it relates to circadian rhythm?
2: Yeah, so as I, uh, when I was entering the field of circadian rhythm, that time timing in biology was a curiosity. If you think of all other biomedical research, that's mostly centered on gene X does Y, and then if we have a drug against gene X, then we can modify Y. So it was mostly two-dimensional. And circadian rhythm kind of brought the third dimension to biology. And this field was evolving. It became very clear that the whole reason why even for humans or plants we exist is we produce some food at certain time or eat some food at certain time and then we store that and then we judiciously our body spends it during our fasting period. So this cycle goes on every day. So if uh, there is a 24-hour timing system inside any organism, that has to be linked to this eating and fasting or for plants making some carbohydrate and spending it overnight. Over the last 20 years, the field has really made a transformation towards this intrinsic link between metabolism and circadian rhythm.
1: So you talked about how you ended up at Salk Institute. So what's it like to work at a place where Nobel laureates such as Francis Crick once worked? It has to be absolutely incredible.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, Salk Institute is an incredible place. I mean, uh, start thinking about, I start from Jonas Salk. I mean, a few years ago, we had a few kids coming to the institute, and somebody asked the one kid, do you know what is polio? And then the kid thought for a while and thought and then said, well, is it a bug? <laughs> <laughs> like a butterfly or bug, something like that. So that's amazing. Like one guy, Jonas, who... Completely eradicated, almost completely eradicated polio from North America to an extent that now we have a kid who doesn't know what is polio. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are very few scientists who have achieved that fit. So, starting from Jonas and then Francis Crick, who essentially is the father of modern biology. And in fact, in Salk Institute, we still have Francis's old office with his uh, Nobel Medal, a replica of it, and then his letter to his son from 1953, he describing the double helix to his son. When you see that, yes, you feel the shiver in the back. At the same time, you also feel the pressure that (laughs) you are at a place where the standards are extremely high. And a few years ago, when I was starting in Salk Institute, I went up to Professor Wiley Bell, who also discovered many very important hormones in our body that regulate metabolism, I asked Wiley, what do you consider being successful in science, particularly at Salk? And Wiley said, well, if you can describe your scientific career in 50 words, that's pretty good. But if you can summarize your work in one or three words, then that's really good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a a unique way of looking at it. (laughs) So during your time at Salk, you've become well-known for your studies on time-restricted feeding in animals, particularly your studies on circadian timing and feeding in mice. Can you talk about your first mouse study where you took mice from the same mother that were identical in age and gender and fed one group an around-the-clock high-fat diet and a second group the same diet but limited their eating window to eight hours? So essentially, can you talk about that study and how the results so surprised you that you ended up repeating the experiment three times?
2: Yeah, so the first study was um, very simple, straightforward. We had two groups of mice. Both groups were supposed to get the same number of calories from the same high-fat, high-sucrose diet. They used to get nearly 60% of their calories from fat and then 20% from sucrose and then the rest from protein. And every week we would weigh the food and weigh the mice, make sure that the mice had the same number of calories. And after 18 weeks, we found the mice that had in a time-restricted fashion within eight hours, although they had the same number of calories, they were 28% less, almost one third less. And that was very surprising because, as you know, people always say that the first law of thermodynamics and then say how calorie has to be conserved. So calorie coming in has to be spent either as uh, activity or stored as fat. So that was really shocking. What happened to this one-third of body weight? So we repeated it. At the same time, we carefully measured how much uh, the mice were moving around for almost a week. Since means we took a subset of mice and we made sure that their activity is also equivalent. So we repeated this experiment three times, and every time it came out the same, it was within 18 weeks, these mice, so the difference in body weight will be somewhere between 25 to 28%. And three times, they're also repeated by independent people. So we knew that it's not tied to only one person doing the experiment in some way. So then we became very confident about the result.
0: What motivated you to undertake this specific study? And what were you expecting with the mouse studies at first?
2: Well, the whole idea at that time was both mice do have the same genetic clock. But the mice that eat randomly throughout 24 hours would have a clock that's pretty much dampened. So essentially, it's almost like a mouse that doesn't have a circadian clock versus Mm -hmm. when we consolidated feeding, we thought that maybe consolidated feeding will sustain a healthy clock. At that time, if we look back by 2012, there was not much known about such huge difference between a mouse that doesn't have a clock versus a mouse that has a clock. Of course, there are some genetic studies, but the differences were not as substantial as this 28% body weight change. We are expecting, well, we might see some small differences. Maybe these mice will have less fat, or maybe they'll have slightly reduced cholesterol or fat in the blood. But we never expected such a big difference. So that was really shocking and surprising.
1: So you published the results of these experiments in 2012. And the question then became, is eight hours a magic number? And I understand there's a pretty funny story about how eight hours became the so-called magic number and how this led you to do further research.
2: Yeah, so uh, actually in those days, I had a graduate student, Christopher Walmers, who is now an assistant professor in uh, UC Santa Cruz. And he was very meticulous in his experiments. But at the same time, around this, uh, he had a girlfriend who did not uh, let... Christopher to be in the lab for more than nine hours. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so the experiment actually involved every day going to the mouse room and in the morning transferring the mice from fasting case to feeding case because the mouse room had inverted light-dark cycle. And then around uh, after eight hours, he would go back and then change the mice again from feeding case to fasting cages. And each of these operations would take roughly half an hour. So that would <laughs> make the nine hours he was allowed to be in the lab. And, you know, when you want to have good people in the lab, you have to keep them happy. You have to keep their family happy, dog happy, everybody happy. So so that's why we did the experiment uh, for eight hours. And we could have done it for six hours, nine hours, ten hours, but that was not going to keep anybody happy. (laughs) So that's why we did it for eight hours. You wouldn't
1: have had a researcher for long.
2: (laughs) No, no. And actually, they're happily married and they're together even till the, today.
1: Well, excellent. <laughs> That's good news. So we know that after 12 to 16 hours without food, people typically enter ketosis. Have you looked at the role of ketosis in time-restricted eating, especially in regard to weight loss and other potential health benefits?
2: Yes. People do see after 12 to 16 hours of fasting in humans, the ketone levels in blood begins to rise And uh, when the blood ketone level begins to rise, we also have to keep in mind that the ketone bodies might have already significantly increased in liver cells or in the gut cells where ketones are produced. So maybe after 10 hours of fasting, ketone body begins to rise in the cells that produce them. And then after another two to four hours, we begin to see that increasing in blood. And we do see there is a correlation between how many hours mice fast and how ketone body begins to rise in their blood. So in that context, we do believe that some of the health benefits of uh, time-restricted feeding may be mediated by this increase in ketone bodies Hmm. in these mice.
1: So in the mouse studies, the mice that followed time-restricted eating also had an endurance benefit. Do you think this might also be related to ketosis?
2: Yeah, that's a very interesting hypothesis because we have seen now in many independent studies that increasing ketone bodies increases endurance benefit, endurance exercise. And in our mice, we also see this very interesting aspect that when mice eat, say, at libitum 24 hours or for 12 hours the same number of calories, 10 hours the same number of calories or 8 hours the same number of calories, then the endurance benefit is the is most profound In mice that eat eight hours, it is slightly, but not significantly reduced at 10 hours, but at 12 hours eating, it's significantly reduced. So that tells us, and that also correlates nicely with the amount of ketone bodies. So in mouse, it is correlation. And people always say correlation doesn't mean causation, but at the same time, I would argue that lack of correlation (laughs) never explains causation. (laughs) Good point. So, (laughs) So in this way, I think, uh, if you combine both human studies and mouse studies that we know so far, that's why I feel that some of the endurance benefits may be due to ketogenesis. Mm.
0: Yes, a, a lab uh, at UC Davis had, has seen increases in grip strength in mice and endurance when the mouse were fed a ketogenic diet. So I, yeah. I think you're right.
2: Uh, but uh, I should also point out if you look carefully in that UC Davis studies, you'll see that the ketone, the ketogenic diet was given once a day. And I talked to the lab and then they said, yes, the right. mice actually finished that food within 10 to 12 hours.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, so the mice also self-imposed self some yeah. type of time restriction.
3: Mm.
0: Yeah, these, these were probably lucky mice, right? So they were yeah. time-restricted <laughs> ketogenic mice.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: So <laughs> this is, this is the ones you need chow 24 hours around clock. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about what time-restricted eating looks like. I'm going to quote from your book where you say, the moment you eat breakfast or have your first cup of coffee or tea is the beginning of your eating window. And you go on to say that water doesn't signal the start of the eating window, but coffee or tea do. So now we have a colleague of ours at IHMC who is going around (laughs) telling people to buy your book and try time-restricted eating. But he says the moment he tells people they can't have coffee first thing in the morning, they throw a fit and say, absolutely no way. Since mice don't drink coffee and black coffee has zero calories like water, can you explain why you say coffee is forbidden in the morning? Or is there perhaps a little bit of wiggle room when it comes to black coffee?
2: Well, when I wrote the book, I was thinking about average Joe who goes to Starbucks or Pete's Coffee or Dunkin' Donuts and order a coffee. And if you watch carefully, you'll see less than 10% of people actually walk out with the black coffee. Yeah. (laughs) most people will wait there. The coffee takes longer to prepare than it takes for them to consume it. So keeping that in mind, I said, well, no coffee or tea. And also back in India, I know a lot of people get up in the morning and then they have that tea with cream and sugar. So that's one reason. The second reason is, this book is not written only for weight loss. Uh, it's for overall health. We know there are a lot of people who do have acid reflux. Nearly 64 million prescriptions are written every year in the U.S. for acid reflux. And then a lot of people take over-the-counter medication. And we know that black coffee or coffee in general, an empty stomach, can cause acid reflux for some people. And that's why, that's second reason. And then the third reason is, a lot of people don't understand that coffee or tea does affect their sleep and there are a lot of people who drink coffee or tea outside the window in the sense they can't drink coffee and tea late at night even though they may be drinking black coffee late at night which is no calorie it can affect their sleep so since the book is all about the entire circadian rhythm including sleep work cycle that's why I mentioned that but having said that it's true that if somebody is drinking only black coffee or black tea and is still following, say, 8 to 10 hours of eating, then it's okay. And then then I make three funny exceptions. One is, if you're a shift worker and you did the night shift, and in the morning you are still sleepy, so it's better to be caffeinated and drive than to Mm -hmm. drive sleepy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Second is, uh, if you're waking up very early, say, 3 or 4 o'clock, and then you have to report for work, and you have a work, for example, being in a studio as a newscast then your job is on the line <laughs> you cannot be sewing up to your job sleepy so that's the second ex- exception and then uh, third one is is coffee is the only thing in life that keeps you happy Then <laughs> you should have it <laughs>
0: mm. well said <laughs> It has been widely and informally, of course, reported that uh, caffeine may be useful for resetting the circadian clock to treat jet lag induced by international time zone cutting travel. Given its widespread use, there seems to be a relative paucity of research on the phase response curve of caffeine. Judging by your observations, do you think some people may actually be able to use caffeine constructively to advance circadian phase related to international travel?
2: Yeah, absolutely. People can use coffee by timing it properly for their shift work. That's very common and that can be used uh, judiciously. In fact, there are now studies going on in Australia to figure out how to time coffee in a way that it can increase alertness at work and not affect their sleep habit. So it's possible to do that. When you mention phase response curve, uh, phase response curves are very difficult and laborious to construct are only light phase response curves are done for humans. Coffee becomes difficult because you have to do coffee on top of light-dark cycle. Another thing that uh, comes into play is a lot of people are very sensitive to coffee. They metabolize coffee very slowly. So even the same cup of coffee will have a widely different effect between somebody who metabolizes coffee quite rapidly versus someone who doesn't. Although we know the underlying genetics only recently, it was not possible to differentiate those people a few years ago. So I guess these studies are yet to come, but I strongly believe, yes, with coffee, one can rapidly adapt to jet lag, shift work, um, but one has to be judicious so that the timing and your own metabolisms do not affect your sleep as well at nighttime.
0: I was pleased to uh, learn a few years back that I'm a hyper-metabolizer of caffeine. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm on the opposite
0: spectrum, so I cannot drink coffee
2: afternoon.
1: So a few years ago, your lab did some mouse studies that looked at obesity and type 2 diabetes. Can you talk about those experiments and findings?
2: Yeah, so our first experiment was actually prevention. So in the first experiment, we had taken lean mice and put them on time-restricted feeding or ad libitum, and then we showed that the time-restricted feeding prevented obesity type 2 diabetes. But the real question for translation to humans was, Can obese and mice that are glucose intolerant who are in the early stages of diabetes, can they benefit? So that's why what we did, we fattened up the mice by feeding them this high-sucrose diet for almost uh, 23 weeks. That's pretty long for a mouse life. And then we put them on nine hours time-restricted feeding. And then over the next 13 weeks, we could see that these mice gradually lost a good amount of their fat, not muscle. And they also improved their glucose intolerance. So that now they become more tolerant to glucose. So their insulin was working very well. And I think that was the most critical experiment in the last 10 years in my, in my lab. Because there are a lot of ways to prevent. But right now, when we think about, say, almost two-thirds of the U.S. population is overweight or obese, if we want to think of a solution that can be mass-adapted, then time restricted feeding had to have this therapeutic effect. So that's why this is a very important finding Mm. in our lab.
1: Excellent. And a good portion of your book is dedicated to the importance of sleep. And so you write in the book, and this is a quote, if you're a card-carrying shift worker who wakes up in the middle of the night to go to work, returns from work late at night, or stays awake all night, you know how it feels to be living against a primitive, primordial drive to sleep at night and stay awake during the day. And you go on to say that in this modern world of ours, we're kind of all shift workers to a certain degree. In your view, shift work is unhealthy because it disrupts our circadian rhythms. Can you talk a little bit about this?
2: Yeah, so if we think of what is the definition of shift work, and, you know, this is a very ill-defined term in general literature. If we look at the World Health Organization or International Labor Organization's definition of shift work, which is a compilation from many European countries' definition, shift work is Essentially, somebody is staying awake for three hours between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. for at least 50 days in a week. So that means once a week. <laughs> and then if we think about it, uh, we immediately know someone or maybe many of us have done this. So that's why I say almost every everyone is a shift worker. Mm-hmm. So now, what do we do in modern society when we stay awake late into the night? We have some bright light, or we are watching TV or working on computer, when we stay awake late into the night, we are also sleep deprived because it's really hard to catch up on our lost sleep on a working day if we have to get up early morning and then go to work. So what we know is a sleep deprived brain does many funny things. One is when we stay awake late into the night, then our brain miscalculates how much energy we really need for the rest of the night. So it makes us more hungry than what we need to eat. So then we tend to eat more. Second, a sleep-deprived brain also makes bad decisions. And in a typical day, we make close to 250 different decisions about our food, when to eat, what to eat, what combination to eat, and how much to eat, when to stop, so many different decisions about food. And when brain cannot decide many things, then it also makes bad decisions about food. So then we tend to over it. So, the first thing is that a sleep deprived brain is making us more hungry and it's also not helping us by choosing the right food. And then, third, we tend to overeat. So, those things do happen. Now, at the same time, when we eat late at night, sleep deprivation in combination with late night eating also causes more damage because during our sleep, we also produce growth hormone that helps repair our damaged cells. So, when we sleep less, we have less growth hormone to repair our cells. And then when we eat late into the night, then our stomach is also still working to digest the food so the stomach cannot repair itself. So the lack of growth hormone and also having food in the stomach slows down the repair process so that we accumulate more and more damage in our gut. And our gut lining is, when it's damaged, then allergy-causing food particles or disease-causing bacteria or bacterial cell walls, LPS, for example, can enter our blood and cause more inflammation, so that's why lack of sleep or shift work like lifestyle has more cascading adverse effect on our health than we currently understand.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have thoughts on uh, what an ideal ratio of deep sleep to REM sleep would be? You know, in an ideal human, what would that look like?
3: Yeah,
2: that's a hard question because this is where I have to defer this to some sleep specialist. Because as we age, we also change our sleep pattern. As we age, we have less and less REM sleep. We also have less and less deep sleep. Then the question is, if we sleep long enough, so for example, if somebody is sleeping, say, six hours versus someone sleeping for eight to nine hours, by lengthening the number of hours one can have rest, can one catch up on REM sleep? Or can one catch up on deep sleep? So I'll not go into this (laughs) guesstimating But I think um, I'll leave it to the experts. Mm. No,
0: thank you.
1: So I understand that you think very highly of firefighters and that you have a study underway looking at firefighters and shift work. And I also understand that you think firefighters and mothers of newborns have a lot in common. Can you talk a little bit about this?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I call all the shift workers as the guardians of the society. Mm. (laughs) I I would call them guardians of the universe, but then my postdoc said no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the society. <laughs> well, uh, if you think about it, um, firefighters or ambulance drivers and nurses who are doing night shift, they're actually responding to our emergency at a time when the rest of the society is asleep. The same thing happens for a new mother. The new mother has to respond to this baby waking up in the middle of the t- night three, four times and crying. In fact, few, uh, last year, a couple of people from my lab and from UCSD they wanted to experience the life of a firefighter. So they went and spent 24 hours in the busiest fire station in San Diego. And when they came back, they described the experience as being a new mom with a crying baby because you don't know at what time of the night and how many times in a night the siren will go off and then you have to get up. Sometimes you may not have to do much. It's just a random cry from a baby, for example. And sometimes you have to actually get into the gear and drive to the spot and then come back after half an hour completely sleep-deprived. So in that way, every new mother is a firefighter. (laughs) And Mm. uh, we know how much disruption every firefighter has in daily life. Similarly, every new mother also has a lot of circadian disruption. So in line of that, uh, we are doing a very unique study uh, looking at how we can optimize circadian rhythm among firefighters, and in the larger context, this is also important because if you look at clinicaltrials.gov website, there are nearly 350,000 plus clinical studies going on. But in 99% of those clinical studies, shift work is exclusion criteria. So that means, although in modern society our life depends on 20 plus percentage of shift card-carrying shift workers. And we know that lifestyle is really bad for your health. 99% of our clinical studies to improve human health excludes them. In that context, our new study to figure out how to optimize circadian life of firefighters and what are the benefits we are going to see excites me. And we're happy that San Diego... Fire and Rescue firefighters have been extremely eager for this study because they understand that whatever comes out of this study will, if we see positive impact, then it will uh, impact 1.2 million firefighters in North America.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. That sounds uh, like something they should be excited about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. Numerous studies have shown that restricted feeding schedules may be able to shift the phase of activity in animals such as mice, as we earlier mentioned. What do you think the underlying mechanisms might be, and do you think it might be possible to use diet to expedite entrainment to shift light-dark cycles in humans such as firefighters or international travelers?
2: Yes, a few years ago, actually, when even in my lab, uh, we always thought that the light-dark cycle is the master time giver to our circadian system. And so we knew that almost every organ in our body has a circadian clock and it has to be entrained or synced with the outside world. And we always thought it's the light-dark cycle that syncs everything. But a few years ago, almost 10 years ago in 2008, we did a simple experiment where we fed mice during daytime when they're not supposed to eat. And we found that in liver, almost every circadian clock gene and also every gene that ever cycles, they change their phase or the time when they reach their peak period by almost 12 hours. As if the light-dark cycle didn't have any effect, it was the feeding-fasting cycle. And over the last 10 years, numerous other labs have done the same study and they have found it's not only the liver clock, almost every organ in our body, in a mouse body, including many parts of the brain, actually track eating fasting rhythm. Only a small part of the hypothalamus tracks light dark. And few last year or the year before, scientist who has done a lot of stuff in this area, Dr. Carolina Escobar from Mexico City, and actually I was in her lab last week. She did a very interesting experiment. She did the same, she asked the exact same question that you asked for jet lag. Can you simulate jet lag in mice? Change the light dark cycle? change the feeding fasting cycle, or change both of them and see which mice reset faster. And what she found was when you change both the light-dark cycle, which naturally happens when we fly from one time zone to another time zone, and in sync, you also change the eating fasting cycle, then these mice re-entrain to the new quote-unquote time zone or new light-dark cycle much faster than when you change only light-dark cycle. Mm. So that very... Simple experiment done in rats has a huge impact. Now we are thinking that maybe we should also pay attention to changing our eating fasting cycle, particularly when you have jet lag. Sometimes people wake up in the middle of the night feeling hungry and they go up on the freeze or eat something. And that's the last thing you want to do when you have jet lag. So one should really pay attention to eating fasting and in that way one can re-entrain much faster to a shift work or to jet lag.
0: Hmm. In your book, you mentioned that chronotypes, the existence of night owls and morning larks, are largely a myth. However, there is some evidence for different wakefulness periods in hunter-gatherer populations not exposed to artificial light. Do we really know whether chronotypes exist or not? Yeah, I mean, uh,
2: when we say chronotypes, mostly people relate their chronotypes to night owl. And then the night owls are a very different group because a large proportion of night owls. And night owls, because of two things, either they're drinking coffee in the afternoon or they're exposed to a lot of light. So in that way, when people think that they're night owls because of some genetic predisposition, they have to think it twice. They have to think how much light they're exposed to or how much coffee they're drinking. Mm-hmm. And then the early birds, are uh, maybe they are the ones who may have a strong genetic uh, basis, uh, but there are very few early birds, actually. Uh, people who really wake up around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and even in their 20s and 30s. Because as we get older, that's a different story. <laughs> we don't get enough sleep. Now, going back to hunter-gatherers, there is this continuous debate whether people used to have biphasic sleep, people used to sleep. Many people think that historians, particularly, they have come up with this uh, idea that in many cultures, in many historical periods, they have found evidence that people would wake up around 3 or 4 or 2 o'clock in the morning and then stay awake for a couple of hours, and then they would go back to sleep for another couple of hours. It also happens in modern societies. Some of us do that. And in fact, uh, I have experienced it personally a few times. But there are a few studies with the hunter-gatherers where they were given this activity watch that can track sleep-wake cycle and they don't find widespread observation that these hunter-gatherers wake up in the middle of the night and stay awake for a couple of hours. So that's what created some confusion whether this biphasic sleep was there and somehow these modern scientists who have gone to hunter-gatherers, they haven't found it. I think uh, both are right (laughs) because, you know, it's almost like we know that as we get older, it's very hard to have consolidated sleep. And if you're not careful, we'll wake up, and spend a couple of hours staying awake and then going back to sleep. But it doesn't happen among young people. And many of the hunter-gatherer societies that are explored, maybe we uh, track the relatively young people. Uh, But then the question is, is biophysics sleep normal? Is it uh, common? This is where we have to make a distinction. What is common may not be normal. For example, if a lot of people have acid reflux and it becomes common, is it normal? No, So similarly, having fragmented sleep, if it was commonly found in many cultures in history, was it normal? I doubt it.
0: STEM Talk is an educational service of the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, a not-for-profit research lab pioneering groundbreaking technologies aimed at leveraging and extending human cognition, Perception, locomotion, and resilience.
1: So, you were recently at a symposium in Stockholm, and a well-respected scientist in the area of obesity came up to you after your talk and said, "There is no data that shift work causes more disease." How did you respond?
2: Well, I um, this shift work and disease—that's a very knees nice area and all the circadian rhythm researchers and sleep researchers pay attention to this literature so i was actually of course initially i was surprised but then i realized that well this literature is very dear to our heart to a very small number of people who work in sleep and circadian rhythm so he may not be aware about it so i pointed out a few reviews and also pointed out this idea or this uh, this thing from world health organization a few years ago World Health Organization looked at shift work and cancer risk and found that women who do shift work as nurses or uh, caregivers are at a disproportionately high risk for breast cancer. And that led World Health Organization to classify shift work as a potential carcinogen. And that's for the first time a type of work that does not involve a chemical exposure has been classified as a carcinogen. And when I mentioned to him, then he realized that, yes, that must be rich literature. He said he would go back and look at it more carefully.
1: So, a lot of people watch TV just before going to bed, and others stare at their laptop and tablet screens in bed. Can you talk about the importance of darkness when it comes to sleep in our circadian rhythms?
2: Yeah, so in modern society, we have lost our right to darkness, (laughs) I would say.
1: It's a great way of putting Uh, it, by the way.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we really need darkness because almost 16 years ago, my lab, that time I was a postdoc, and two other labs co-discovered this blue light-sensing protein called melanopsin. It's present in only 5,000 cells in each human retina, mm-hmm. and they sense mostly blue spectrum of light. And why this is important is almost up to 150 years ago, uh, before modern electricity, we actually didn't have much access to blue light at night because the candlelight or the firelight is very poor source of blue light. So that means even though we can see under firelight, candlelight, or even the old Edison bulb with tungsten filament light, there is not enough blue light to activate our melanopsin. And this melanopsin does many things. Uh, these cells are literally hardwired. To the master circadian clock neurons in our brain. And they're also connected to, indirectly connected to melatonin producing cells in the pineal. And they also affect uh, sleep. They also affect migraine causing neurons in the thalamus. So that means at night, now when we're watching TV, exposed to, say, tablet or screen. Or more importantly, these days, if you go to any grocery store, now many of the grocery stores or even Walmart has at least 1,000 locks of light. And that's very bright light. So what it is doing is it's really reducing the amount of melatonin our brain is producing for several hours, even after we get out of that store, or even after we switch off our TV for a few minutes in case of TV. So in that way, we are turning off a hormone in our brain, that should make us to sleep. And just imagine there are very few things uh, that we're exposed to in modern life that directly affect neuroendocrine function. And light at night is turning out to be one of those environmental factors. Hmm. Uh, So as we are exposed to more light, uh, we are likely to sleep less and we're likely to make many more bad decisions like eating late at night and eating unhealthy food. So in that way, this is, a, this is just a trigger for many unhealthy behavior. And that's why more and more I'm more interested in how to raise awareness about light and how to shape public policy or make lighting engineers, architects, and building code, people who are in charge of guidelines and codes for buildings to incorporate the knowledge about light into built environment.
1: Hmm. So you had a 2017 paper in Aging Research Reviews titled Circadian Rhythms, Time-Restricted Feeding, and Healthy Aging, and you point out that circadian rhythms optimize physiology and health by temporally coordinating cellular function, tissue function, and behavior. Can you talk about how your study found that optimizing the timing of external cues with defined eating patterns can sustain a person's circadian clock and also possibly prevent disease?
2: Yeah, so most of the bodily function that we experience on a daily basis essentially fall into two major categories. One is nurturing the cell or organ, and then second is repairing and rejuvenation. A simple correlation, as I mentioned in my book, the circadian code, is just like your brain needs to sleep because it has to reset, repair, and rejuvenate for another day. Similarly, every organ in our body needs that downtime to repair and reset. So the circadian clock does that, first thing, by exposing us to light and darkness for a defined interval, because sleep is essentially darkness. <laughs> and then the second thing is by producing a hunger and satiety signal. So in that way, we're hungry only for a few hours, and then we're not hungry for 12 or more than 12 hours. And if we obey that circadian rhythm of hunger and satiety, then we will give our organs the much-needed time for repair and rejuvenation. And when our organs are repaired and rejuvenated on a daily basis, it's almost like taking care of your car, getting the oil changed and uh, tires uh, rotated, etc., on a regular basis. So disease, if we think of disease, most of the diseases are due to lack of repair. So for example, when our gut is not repaired well. Our gut lining, for example, recycles every 10 to 15 days. So that means in every 10 to 15 days, we have a new layer of cells in our gut lining. It's not that after 12 days, just like a snake changes its skin, we just change. That means every day we are repairing 8 to 10% of our gut lining. So if we stop repairing that by eating late into the night, then we interfere with that repair process. And then after a few days, we'll have maybe leaky gut. I'm doing a little exaggeration, but people can imagine that. And then that can lead to, uh, as I said, allergy-causing chemicals entering your body or disease-causing bacteria entering, or there will be local inflammation that will slowly lead to colitis and maybe colon cancer. In fact, shift workers, there is a lot, large studies done on shift workers in Japan, and they found that shift workers are at a high risk for colon cancer. And similarly, inflammation goes up, and many of the chronic diseases have a root in increased inflammation. So that's why having a strong eating-fasting rhythm and having a strong sleep-wake cycle and avoiding light for at least few hours before going to bed can sustain a healthy circadian rhythm. And when the rhythms are sustained, then everything else falls into its right place. And we can delay disease hmm. or even sometimes reverse some of the diseases.
1: So your recent paper appeared in Cell Metabolism and was titled Time-Restricted Feeding Prevents Obesity and Metabolic Syndrome in Mice Lacking a Circadian Clock. And in that study, one group of mice was fed food, and then and they gained weight and showed genotype-specific metabolic defects. However, mice that were fed the same diet with a time-restricted window of 10 hours were protected from excessive weight gain and metabolic diseases. Can you talk a little bit about that study?
2: Yeah, so this study was inspired by this um, ongoing change in our perception of our disease, because as we learn more and more about our genetics uh, through gene sequencing or genotyping services, for example, 23andMe, almost every one of us find that each one of us has few genes that will predispose us to one or more diseases. So that's also changing our mindset. We're thinking that we are at the mercy of our mutant genes and we cannot do anything about it. So then the question is, uh, what is more powerful, your mutant gene or a good lifestyle? (laughs) That's why we did this study where we took mice that did not have their internal clock because they lacked critical clock genes. So in this case, although the mice own body, own brain and organs cannot tell when to stop eating and when to start eating, we asked if we bring an external discipline, in this case, timing of food, and say, well, we know you have a genetic defect that doesn't allow you to figure out when to eat or not to eat. But if we tell you when to eat and not to eat, can we keep you healthy, even in the presence of this faulty gene? That's why we did this experiment, and surprisingly, what we found is these mice were as healthy as the mice uh, that have normal clock and were following this time-restricted feeding regimen. And we think this is... Very important because as we know, as we are learning more and more about circadian CLOCK and we are doing more and more GWAS studies where people are linking mutation in CLOCK genes, CLOCK regulated genes, or mutation in, for example, melatonin receptor, a protein that binds to melatonin. Uh, many of these mutations are very common. As common as 30 to 40% of the population have some of these mutations. And those mutations uh, imply that These people are at a high risk for obesity, diabetes, or some of the cardiovascular diseases. Then the question becomes, if people come to know about it, what can they do? Are they hopeless or can they do something in their life? Of course, mice do not have that self-discipline, but humans, with the right knowledge, we can self-discipline ourselves and be more careful. So that's why we're excited about this study, that um, this will help people who find out that they have a faulty gene And they can be a little bit more careful about when they eat. And hopefully they can uh, negate or reduce the adverse effect of genetic defects. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Are the benefits of time-restricted feeding reproduced in different mouse strains and across both genders? Or have all studies been done on the same uh, strain of mouse in the same gender?
2: Yes. Slowly we are seeing that the effect of time-restricted feeding is being replicated in different um, mouse strains and uh female mice particularly the mouse strain that we use uh, C57B6 is a widely used mouse strain those female mice actually do not become obese with a high fat diet so once they don't become obese then it's difficult to show the benefit of time restricted feeding but if you overectomize those female mice and this is a study done in UCSD University of California San Diego then these mice mimic postmenopausal women's life and they become obese And if you put them under time-restricted feeding, then they lose a good amount of weight and they also improve their glucose uh, intolerance. Mm. So that's uh, one clear example that it benefits both male and female mice. In terms of strains or genetic background of mice, some of the circadian mutant mice studies that I alluded to, some of those mice were actually in mixed background. So that's one idea that it works on multiple strains. Of course, Drosophila is too far from human, but in Drosophila, we have done time-districted feeding in multiple different strains of flies. And in fact, that was done in uh, San Diego State University from where I'm speaking to you right now. And they also found it's effective in multiple strains. Right now, in our lab, we have been trying it in other strains of mice. And then the good news is it's working in other strains of mice. Hmm.
1: So I'm curious: Are the experimental models that are employed, and the fact that mice are nocturnal animals presenting any difficulties for the translation of time-restricted feeding? For effects on human health. And I guess I'm getting at, I'm curious about the fact that these studies are so well controlled in the lab setting that I wonder how well they translate in humans. So in humans, there is inevitably a reduction in overall caloric intake during time-restricted feeding. So kind of curious as to how that effect is separated out from the effects of time-restricted feeding itself. And again, we know that this is very well controlled in the animal studies and it is the time-restricted feeding itself that is having an effect.
2: Yeah, so the human studies, if we do free living humans, of course, we may expect a reduction in calories. But Dr. Courtney Peterson and University of Alabama, Birmingham, just published a beautiful study in 2018, where she controlled for calorie by calorie in two groups of humans. One did time feeding for six hours, then the other group did 12 hours, the same number of calories. She didn't find any weight difference, which is expected because even 12 hours is pretty good for humans. But at the same time, she found significant in insulin sensitivity in humans that ate the same number of calories, but within six hours. They also have better lipid regulation and many other factors improved. So in that way, that's a very well-controlled human study, which is very similar to mouse study. But the only difference was even the control humans there ate for 12 hours. So in that way, we are seeing some of the stuff that we have done in mice are translating to human even when they're controlled for calories. Mm. But in real life, as you um, mentioned, uh, we would expect significant change in maybe caloric intake and also change in nutrition quality. And so we are waiting to see how the impact is in real life. Mm.
0: Following up on this topic, last year, Joseph uh, Takahashi's group published some work showing that mice-fed hypoenergetic diets self-imposed time-restricted feeding. Uh, You know, you give the mice the diet and they consumed it all very quickly. You mentioned this earlier. This implies, to me at least, that some of the benefits of calorie restriction that we hear about so often might actually be due to time-restricted feeding. What are your thoughts on this and how might you try to experimentally disentangle the effects of caloric restriction from those of time-restricted feeding?
2: Yeah, this is a great scientific curiosity for caloric restriction and circadian rhythm field. And in fact, that key experiment done by Jota Kahase was very important. As you mentioned, he found that when caloric-restricted mice, if you monitor the eating pattern, they consume everything within Two to three hours, so it's almost like three hours time-restricted feeding. Then the question is, how do we disentangle, and do we believe that some of the CR benefits may be due to time restriction? In fact, right now there is no data that says otherwise. Maybe some, but not all, because we do know that calorie does count, and reducing calorie is important. Uh, So I think the future studies have to deal with caloric restriction in a slightly different way. Maybe reducing calorie and giving it at one time versus splitting that calorie into six to eight small meals and giving the mice those small meals around the clock will be very important to see what is the effect of caloric restriction versus time restriction.
1: So in your human studies, people who had 8 to 12-hour eating windows also had some health benefits and lost weight. So what role did a person's diet play in weight loss? And did you have people eating a specialized diet, such as a low-carb or high-carbohydrate diet? Or were people allowed to eat whatever they wanted?
3: Yeah,
2: so that was the very first study. And we wanted to see the feasibility of sticking to time-restricted feeding of 10 hours. Uh, So our target was 10 hours. And this was very important to us for many reasons. For example, for 25 years, we know that people who sleep less are more prone to obesity and diabetes, but sleeping more is not a reliable, modifiable behavior because people who habitually sleep for five hours, they find it very difficult to sleep for eight hours on a regular basis. And we really see studies showing that by increasing sleep, one can reduce diabetes. So that's why when we saw this result in mouse and we wanted to test in humans, our first question was, can people actually who are habitually eating for 14, 15 hours, can they come back to 10 hours? So that's why we did this study. So since uh, that was our outcome, we did not ask them to stick to any specific diet plan. We said, whatever you are eating, that's okay with us. The only thing was to find a 10-hour window that would fit their lifestyle. We didn't even tell them whether the 10-hour window should begin at 7, 8, or 9 o'clock. We just asked them to find a time that fits your lifestyle and then try to do it for 16 weeks. And surprisingly, all eight participants who were in the first study, they could do it. And not only that, after 16 weeks, we weighed them and gave them a questionnaire and a few other things. And then between 16 weeks and 52 weeks, end of the year, we had no contact with them we brought them back after one year and we are pleasantly surprised that they were sticking to the 10 hour actually they ended up 10 and a half hour time window all of them had slightly different diet plan they also started their time window slightly differently some the earliest one was 7am the latest one was 11am and all of them stuck to it so that was very gratifying that it is a modifiable behavior because there are a lot of behaviors that we find in experimental models that can benefit human health, but those are not modifiable behaviors in humans.
0: Yes, I know um, numerous people who really can only reliably be in ketosis as a result of time-restricted feeding as opposed to eating a classic ketogenic diet. I've run into many such people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. you mentioned earlier, dysregulated inflammation contributes substantially to the pathobiology of chronic diseases in humans. There's a long-standing debate about whether mice are useful models of human inflammatory diseases. What are your thoughts on this? And does that affect the translatability of research examining circadian rhythm and inflammatory mechanisms in mice?
2: Yeah, so this is, um, you really <laughs> hit the core of chronic disease research um, because of the obvious differences between mouse and human. Yeah, so there are a lot of differences. Means if you, if you ever look at a mouse case that has not been changed over the last four or five days versus a typical human <laughs> living quarter, there are a lot of differences. <laughs> <laughs> so in that context, we have to keep that in mind while thinking about inflammatory disease and differences between human and mice. And that's why... When we did the first experiment in 2012, and right after that, a book came out, Eight Hour Diet, and people used to call me and say, "Well, is it? Uh, should we start practicing?" And then I used to say, I was still skeptical. I used to say, "Well, if you have a C57 male B6 mouse as a pet, and you want to improve its health, maybe try to do that." <laughs> but I think, <laughs> you know, being a scientist and being skeptical for almost three, four years, I did not tell people that you should be doing this. But slowly, what we're seeing is we haven't seen any direct benefit of time-restricted feeding in human inflammatory diseases. And uh, one thing is we haven't even tested this systematically in mice. There is at least one lab now which had a very interesting paper showing that mice on time-restricted feeding are protected from bacterial sepsis which is really interesting because there are a lot of uh, human diseases that um, involve bacterial infection. Second thing, in our studies, we find that inflammation in fat cells go down under time-restricted eating. But when it comes to humans, we don't have any clear data because we haven't done any controlled studies. And no one um, that I know of has done this study and looked at uh, inflammatory marker. The problems are among... Many healthy people, the inflammatory markers are high sensitivity CRP. And even some people debate whether that's a good marker for inflammation. So, in our ongoing studies, we are tracking some of the inflammatory markers. We'll see whether that pans out. But anecdotally, what we have heard from people who have started practicing time-restricted eating in the last couple of years, they anecdotally tell us that they fall sick less often. And whether that's related to time-restricted eating or the eating a healthier diet, that's a different thing. We also hear from people, they say, their joint pains go down. And that's a clear marker of inflammation going down. But again, these have to be beyond anecdotes because it's possible that only two out of 100 people benefited and that they were kind enough to email me. <laughs> and the 98 people didn't see a difference, so they didn't bother to email me. <laughs> so that's why we have to do scientific studies, rigorous scientific studies. But all of these indications are encouraging, but at the same time, I cannot say whether everything will translate to human. Mm.
0: Hmm. Good answer.
1: So at your lab at the Salk Institute, you've developed an app called My Circadian Clock, which is part of a research project that's using smartphones to track people's daily behaviors. And we'll make sure to include a link about that project in the show notes for this episode. But can you give us an overview of the project as well as tell people how they can participate in the research?
2: Yeah, so in 2012, 2013, when we started thinking about human studies, we realized that there is no, at that time, there was no clear way to monitor or even get self reports from humans about uh, when they were eating. So we developed this app called org. People can go to the website called MyCicadianClock.org where they have to consent to our study and give us a little bit of information so that we can link their lifestyle to their health, just body weight, BMI, Uh, not much, no disease information. Um, But we wanted to track when people eat. And after, uh, usually people share their habitual eating, sleeping, and maybe a little bit of physical activity data for the first one or two weeks. And then through the app, we give some guidelines or nudges on how to stick to a time-restricted eating paradigm, also how to improve sleep and how exercise has impact on sleep and circadian rhythm for the next 12 to 14 weeks. So in that way, what we thought was we can capture data from a lot of people, but at the same time, people can also help us by practicing the time restricting and letting us know what kind of improvement they have been seeing. One simple example is actually from this app only, we are finding that a vast majority of people, when they do time restricting. They see improvement in their acid reflux and improvement in their sleep. And that helped us to now devise new experiments in mice to figure out uh, the mechanism. Similarly, if you think just for a second about all clinical trials we ever do in academia, most clinical trials are done in few clinical centers, maybe 40 or 50 throughout uh, North America. And people who participate in those clinical studies live within 20 to 40 miles from these clinical centers. So now imagine everything that we know about biomedical research is so concentrated on these tiny small pockets. And only people who have time and the willingness to visit the clinical centers multiple times can contribute to biomedical research. So by opening the app, now anyone anywhere in the world or in this country who is willing to share their data but doesn't have the time commitment to come to a clinical center multiple times can still give us some useful data to understand how daily eating, sleeping and activity pattern affect our health and how changing one aspect of it can have some effect, some positive impact on human health. Mm. Mm. We also are looking forward to people sharing their information of our experience about any adverse side effects so that we can think about that in our clinical studies and make sure that we look for those adverse side effects. But we haven't found any
0: significant adverse side effect yet. Have you found any um, sleep tracker, commercial sleep tracking software and hardware um, like the Oura Ring and there, there are others that seem relatively convincing to you in terms of accuracy?
2: I think this is a very... Rapidly expanding and improving field in terms of technology. There are so many, uh, you mentioned ring and uh, in fact, I wear one.
0: And, yeah, me too. Uh,
2: su- surprisingly, they give a huge amount of data on overall health and sleep. Um, so I think slowly, very quickly, in the next four to five years, I'm hoping to see very accurate um, trackers that will be in our hand. But at the same time, I'm beginning to think slightly differently are we going to be exposed to our actuarial self versus our somatic self mm. means every day when i wake up and look at my <laughs> phone and look at all the health stats one thing is very clear i'm not a perfect person <laughs> <laughs> i'm no. not the ideal being <laughs> and then the question is is it creating more anxiety exactly. in me and and am i getting driven by this actuarial number whether it's you are 300, you've got a score of 300, you should have been at 500. And then the question is, how is that data going to be used for my healthcare or for my insurance? So I think in the next few years, we're also beginning to see that debate going on because whatever happens at this, at this time, whatever tracker we are using, it's just giving us correlative data. Can it really predict what time I'll have my heart attack? Maybe not, mm. but can this data be used to set my insurance policy? Maybe. Mm. So that's where, although we have strong regulation now, how to use genetic data, we don't have that guideline, how to use this actuarial data that comes out from our sensors
0: um, for our healthcare. Yeah, you wake up in the morning feeling pretty good and then you look at your sleep <laughs> score and say, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm
1: gonna go back to bed. I'm gonna skip the gym today. <laughs> <laughs> so, I suspect that you could ask a lot of questions about time-restricted eating and longevity. And there was a paper that came out from the National Institute of Aging that showed time-restricted eating might increase longevity. Can you talk a little bit about how that might happen?
2: Yeah, this was a very long-awaited paper from Rafa Cabo, who is also a good friend of mine, and he has been doing this longevity experiments for a long time using caloric restriction. And a uh, few years ago. I think after our paper came out, he got curious about the effect of, as we discussed previously, caloric restriction also has a component of time restriction. And he wanted to disentangle that in a slightly different way. What he did was in his experiment, for one specific, he tried two different diets, but for each diet, he had, instead of two groups that typical caloric restriction people do, one CR and one I'd leave, he had three groups. One CR one ad libitum, and then he measured how much the ad lib mice were eating, and then he gave the exact number of calories every day to a third group of mice every day at the same time, around evening time. So when you give ad lib ration to this third group of mice, they usually eat that within 12 to 13 hours, maximum 13 hours, sometimes between uh, 10 hours. Um, So what was interesting was this third group now almost looks like time restriction because they're eating the ad lib but they are eating within twelve hours every day and at the end of the experiment, what he found as expected the caloric restricted mice lived longer but the what he calls meal fed which is time restriction, those mice lived longer than the lib fed mice so this is another way as Ken had asked me how to disentangle this might be another way to disentangle although the meal-fed mice were not consistently eating the same number of calories every day within 12 hours. For a good number of days, they were eating all their calories within 12 hours. And the idea that they can eat the same number of calories as ad-lib and can live slightly longer uh, than they ad-lib is very exciting. Hmm. And uh, Rafa also found this was not specific to that particular diet. That's very important. He had tried two different diets, and in both diets, this time-restricted fed mice lived longer than the ad lib fed, uh, but they did not live as long as the caloric restricted mice.
1: So you've done quite a bit of work with Walter Longo, who is the author of the Longevity Diet, and who was our guest of episode 64 of Stem Talk. And Walter is best known for his fast mimicking diet. The two of you, however, offer different recommendations in your books. So can you talk about those differences as well as your work with Walter?
2: Yeah, Walter also comes from uh caloric restriction field, and I think he has done something uh, very important because a lot of people, they when they want to try caloric restriction, it becomes very difficult because what to eat, how much to eat, counting calories becomes difficult. For example, even I don't know how many calories I have eaten since morning. And if I have to do the math every day <laughs> and then, uh, eat, then it's difficult. So what Walter has done with this fasting-mimicking diet The idea that you can only do caloric restriction for five days in a row, um, once in a while, and you can still get the same benefit is very exciting uh, for a lot of people who find it difficult to control calories. And um, so in that way, his idea of fasting-mimicking diet is great for a lot of people, and what I do in my labs is the time restriction, which comes from circadian field, and I say, well, one can try to eat maximum, sorry, between 8 to 10 hours and maximum up to 12 hours. Uh, that's a different way to look at it because time-restricted feeding is a lifestyle. A lifestyle is what, when, and how much you eat, sleep, and move on a daily basis. That's very important on a daily basis. Whereas what Walter's fasting-mimicking diet is an intervention. For a lot of people. Of course, some people can do FMD, but the difference is time restriction can be practiced by a five year old to a hundred year old. And this is almost like brushing your teeth. To take care of your dental health, one has to brush teeth every day. But at the same time, we should also remember that once in a while, we have to go to the dentist. So, in that way, a fasting mimicking diet may be the visit to the dentist once in a while. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Research on kernel pharmacology seems encouraging. What are some of the main logistical constraints we face in trying to apply its tenets in the clinic itself?
2: Well, the field of chronopharmacology is relatively young. I mean, there are some studies done in the 80s showing some of the breast cancer drugs work much better if given in the morning or evening. But most of the studies were quite limited to that. And it becomes very difficult to practice chemotherapy in a clinical setting because now we got to schedule people based on the timing of um, their own circadian rhythm and also timing of um, the uh, chemo that they're receiving. And logistically, it becomes a little bit difficult. But I think what will happen is just imagine if we can repurpose our insulin pumps for chemotherapy then maybe in a few years we'll see that um, people don't have to come to clinic for their chemo. They can actually have their insulin pump linked to some other tracker, maybe aura or some other tracker that will monitor their internal circadian clock and will release the chemo this same at the right time. So that's a little far-fetched. But right now there are many other things also happening. For example, in my book I describe these anti-inflammatory drugs for arthritis. We know the arthritis pain is much more severe in the morning than in the afternoon. And people tend to take the pain medication in the morning. But based on the circadian rhythm, we know that the medication, if taken at bedtime, is much more effective. In fact, now there are clinical studies available showing that pain medication for arthritis, if taken in the evening, actually reduces pain in the morning much better. And in fact, there are more slow-release formulations that if they're taken at the bedtime, they're even much more stronger. So similarly, now there are a few studies where a given drug is given at morning versus evening, and the efficacy at different doses are assessed. And one of them is the new sglt 2 inhibitors. These are the new class of drugs for treating diabetes. And what is interesting is based on the human circadian rhythm, A primate circadian rhythm, we'd expect if the drug is given in the evening that it's more effective. And in fact, in one of the studies now it is shown that at a lower dose, these SGLT2 inhibitors are much more effective if given in the evening. So um, I think we are beginning to see few and few more studies. Another thing with pharmacology is many drugs are given at a very high dose so that the drug remains in our system for 24 hours. So at high dose, chronopharmacology is not very effective because we're flooding our system so much that timing doesn't matter. And the timing will matter where somebody has experienced a severe side effect to a high dose and has to take a lower dose. And in that case, timing becomes important. And those studies will just uh, come in the next few years.
1: So I listened to an interview you did with our good friend Tommy Wood, who was our guest on episodes 47 and 48 of STEM Talk. And Tommy was very impressed that when your mother came to visit, you had convinced her to try time-restricted eating. And Tommy was even more impressed that you had the guts to tell your mother that the kitchen in your house was closed after 8 p.m. And although she was a little reluctant about time-restricted eating in the beginning and still wasn't that happy that you weren't a doctor or engineer... I understand that she has now become a complete convert about your career choice as well as about time-restricted eating. Can you share with us what happened?
2: Yeah, so this happened um, almost four years ago when my mother, who is a lifelong vegetarian and also does uh, various forms of fasting, so she fasts at least uh, one day in a week where she eats um, maybe 500 kilocal. She developed the sign of pre-diabetes, her blood glucose level was creeping up it came up to almost 110, and she was very worried. She also had a little extra weight. And I was telling her about time restricting how she should stop eating anything or drinking. This is where tea becomes an issue because she would say, oh, I just have a cup of tea at 9 o'clock, and I know that that tea has <laughs> sugar and cream. So I brought her to uh, San Diego. She usually visits me every year. And then I said, well, you cannot have anything. Actually, the original idea was not to have anything after 6 p.m., but um, there was little disagreement, so we had the time limit at 8 p.m., and then slowly we brought it back to 6 p.m. towards the end. Yeah, so initially she was uh, reluctant, and slowly, over three months, we saw a lot of progress. One is she realized that after two weeks, she did not feel hungry after 6 or 7. And she didn't even feel the need for that late night tea. Then she started to sleep slightly more, means um, maybe half an hour extra. Of course, she lost some weight, a little bit of weight. And then she used to go to a park nearby her house to walk. And she would come back and she would time her walk. And then after, it was nice to see after four months, he came back and said, you know, I can now take an entire round in this park. Instead of 14 minutes, now it takes me 11 and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was interesting because her joint pain was also reducing. And she went back to India and her blood sugar was down to in between 85 and 90 fasting blood sugar. And since then, since that three years ago when she visited me, she has been sticking to this plant. She stopped sitting around 6, 630 and when she visits to other people's house, her relatives insist that she cannot eat <laughs> after 6.30. Now they are very... And so one nice thing about being eldest in the family is people listen to you. <laughs> Uh, so it's uh, really interesting how she has become a complete convert uh, to time restricting. I
1: understand that all of your mother's young siblings have some sort of metabolic disease, either high cholesterol, diabetes, hypertension or a combination of any of these 3. So is there something in particular about the Indian diet that is particularly unhealthy?
2: Well, let's say a combination of diet and lifestyle and um, what is changing in India also recently. One is Indians are typically early risers. Um, we tend to wake up early for many different reasons. One is very hot, you have to get up <laughs> early to do, get some stuff done before it becomes very hot in the day. Second is uh, we also tend to eat very late and uh, dinner is usually after uh, nine o'clock. And in recent years, uh, things have been changing very fast in India. One thing that will lead to future of work is people have less time to cook And also people have less time to fresh fruits and vegetables. With 1.2 billion people, it's really hard to supply enough fresh fruits and vegetables. So people are eating more and more processed food. So a typical Indian life for a middle-aged Indian who is living in a big city and is commuting will be waking up, say, between 5 and 7 a.m., and then, having a immediately having a cup of tea with cream and sugar with some highly processed biscuits, <laughs> which are essentially refined um, carb and sugar and then this person maybe commutes for an hour hour and a half before reaching office and then in the office um some again high carb diet, and then whole day the person works there, and then again in the evening, there is a one to two hours commute plus shopping. So by the time the person comes home, it's eight o'clock in the evening. And I see that among many of my cousins who are back in India. So then dinner time is usually close to nine or even after nine o'clock. This rapid change in Indian lifestyle and also people moving from smaller town to bigger cities where the commute time is long, access to healthy food is um, very rare, and people depending on highly processed, refined food is creating a toxic combination for both circadian rhythm disruption and also unhealthy an diet. Hmm. And I think that's driving, for example, right now, more than half of my classmates from India who are in India and is following this lifestyle, they have all these diseases. Either they have hypertension, diabetes, or high cholesterol, or a combination of any of these three. Hmm.
1: So what does your diet and eating window look like on a typical day?
2: Well, when I'm in town, and usually I have my big breakfast sometime between 7.15 and 7.30, I wake up around 6 o'clock and then I have my breakfast, and um, which is very rich in complex car, for example, oatmeal, um, and then I have some cottages that we make at home, and uh, some dry fruits, um, sometimes eggs, and that's a big meal. And then... Typically, actually, I don't, I skip lunch or if I need to, then I have a very small salad or a soup. And I come home early, so I'm home typically by 5, 5.30 and then have dinner with my daughter and wife by 6, 6.30. Even my daughter, who is 16-year-old, doesn't eat after 6, 6.30. Hmm. So she also goes through at least 12 hours of fasting.
0: Earlier, we talked about the symposium you attended in Stockholm. How do you deal with travel and jet lag in terms of your circadian rhythm like do you have uh, some special tips that you'd like to share
2: <laughs> Well on the day of the travel um actually I also said this on in my book bottom line is on the day of the travel if you're doing an international trip or even east coast to west coast or vice versa in the US then there is very little physical activity so you don't need to eat that much so I usually reduce my calories by half on the day of the travel. Then the second thing is uh, in flight, the only thing one should do (laughs) is try to sleep because if you're going from, say, East Coast to Europe, most of the flights leave in the afternoon or early evening and they reach Europe in the morning. And these are usually six to eight hours, maximum nine hours flight. So between takeoff and landing and all the security, safety instruction, you barely have enough time to sleep. So that's what I do. after you, I reach the new time zone, I immediately try to stick to the new time zone. So that means early morning, I wake up relatively early in uh, wherever I travel so that nearly 15 to 20 minutes before sunrise time in a decent place. I'm not talking about sunrise at 3 a.m. in, Switzerland, in Sweden. <laughs> um, I <laughs> go out for a run so that I get some bright light by the time the sun comes out. Then I have my... Big breakfast and then dinner wherever I am. And usually I skip lunch. One thing is during jet lag, people feel more sleepy in the afternoon. And that sleepiness comes from postprandial dip after lunch. So the key to avoiding that <laughs> late afternoon sleepiness is to completely avoid lunch. And you can do that only if you have a big breakfast. So <laughs> that's my key.
3: Mm. Hmm.
1: So I suspect that you'll be doing a lot more traveling because more and more people are becoming interested in the research that your lab is doing. In terms of the future, what new studies are you considering and what direction do you think your research is going to take?
2: Yeah, so some of the studies we are doing right now is, are in humans. So for example, I told you about one firefighter study, then the other one, we're starting with Dr. Pam Taub, who is the director of Cardiac Rehab Center in UCSD. We're doing a new study to see whether time-restricted feeding, eating will help people with metabolic syndrome. Um, so nearly 10 to 12% of uh, U.S. adults now have metabolic syndrome. So that includes high BMI, abdominal obesity, glucose intolerance, type diabetes, 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, and triglyceride. Uh, so in fact, if you take each individual component of metabolic syndrome and you just ask how many people in this country have at least one of these five different factors, we will cover nearly 60 to 80% of people. So in that way, this study will have a huge impact on figuring out how time-restricted feeding will benefit, whether it will benefit, and how much it will benefit for a lot of people. Mm. Then on the basic science uh, in mouse studies, most of our studies so far, and even... All the time-reserve feeding studies from other labs have been focused entirely on young mice and barely on middle aged mice. We do not know how it will impact older mice. So that's another direction we are going. And we also haven't figured out, although we have published quite a few papers now, but most of our studies have been focused entirely on mouse liver more extensive biochemical studies are done in mouse liver. But we haven't looked at, say, heart, kidney, adrenal gland, gut, etc., which have a basis for many human diseases. So that's another line we are pursuing in the lab. So these are some of the stuff we hope that in the next five to 10 years, we should see some results.
0: That all sounds quite exciting. I wish you uh, all the best with that. Thank you so
2: much, Kent.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the results of your work down the line. And we've really enjoyed this discussion today. So thank you again for joining us on STEM Talk.
0: Thank Thanks you. again. It was a great interview. Yep. We appreciate you spending all the time.
2: No, you're doing a great job because, you know, as scientists, we can only do the basic science, and it's really difficult to communicate the fruit of science to the general public, and you are that missing link. And in fact, in this uh, environment, the science education becomes more and more important to keep us healthy. So thank you for doing this wonderful stuff.
1: Thank you very much. Stem talk. Stem
2: talk. Stem talk. Stem talk. Stem talk. Stem talk. Stem talk. Stem talk.
1: So I have to say, it's amazing how little solid sleep and circadian effect is appreciated in overall health and wellness. And just a note, I am guilty as charged as someone who used to be a very proud all-nighter while in grad school and were working on diving projects. So I do hope that as we learn more through research like Dr. Panda's research, that we are moving towards appreciating the body's natural cycles and need for optimal recovery.
0: I am particularly intrigued with his studies on time-restricted eating. The results he has seen in his trials with mice are quite amazing. It is going to be interesting to see what happens with the human studies that he is lining up.
1: I agree. And if you enjoyed this interview as much as we did, we invite you to visit the STEM Talk webpage where you can find the show notes for this and other episodes, STEMtalk.us. This is Don Carnegie signing off for now.
0: And this is Ken Ford saying goodbye until we meet again on STEM Talk.
1: Thank you for listening to STEM Talk. We want this podcast to be discovered by others. So please take a minute to go to iTunes to rate the podcast and perhaps even write a review. More information about this and other episodes can be found at our website, stemtalk.us. There, you can also find more information about the guests we interview.